and welcome to the TSDCA podcast, where we bring you interviews, conversations, and explorations of the world of theatrical sound design. Today on the show, we have Natalie Huell and Elena Milos, this year's student sound design winners of the Pat Mackay Scholarship for Diversity in Design. We hope you enjoy the show, and thanks for listening. Welcome to you both. Hi, happy to be here. And introduce yourselves for the audience. Hi, I'm Natalie. I'm Elena. As you know, this is supposed to be a very relaxed, like we just want to get to know you, learn more about you as sound designers, as students. So to begin with that, tell us about yourselves. We'll start with you, Natalie. I was born and raised in Poughkeepsie, New York, and I was kind of lucky enough to go to a great school district that actually had a lot of funding for music and for theater. And so I started out kind of young playing instruments and being really interested in music. And I remember some of my first kind of music classes with those tubes that you like bang on the floor and they have a pitch to them. I remember those and enjoying those so much and listening to kind of classical music a lot. I had all these Vivaldi CDs and these CDs I would get in the mail, like Beethoven, piano sonatas. So I really enjoyed those. And I was always connected to music as well as growing up. My dad and my mom were highly involved in their church ministry. My dad doing sound and my mom singing. So I was always surrounded by that. And when I was in middle school, I was in band, of course. And then I kind of got roped into doing the tech crew and learned what a lavalier was there. And kind of at the same time, I ended up getting involved with my dad's church ministry. So I started actually doing video, you know, with the joystick and selecting different camera shots and everything. So I started doing that, and then I got interested in the console, which at that time was an LS9, and pressing record for the sermon, that kind of thing. So I kind of started to get involved in audio around that time in sort of middle school. And I found that I really enjoyed it. And then when I got into high school, we had a M7 and a much larger auditorium to work in. And I felt very inspired to continue doing theater. So I continued theater sound, but I also continued choir and band and did all state for choir, all the NISMA solos and everything. But then I eventually had to make the decision to pick theater and audio over music in order to commit to the productions for the fall, which was really hard for me. So I made that decision and then I became really critical of what I was seeing in my friends during that time in high school. When you're kind of a junior, senior, my parents didn't necessarily have the same involvement as far as like getting my SATs taken and driving lessons or anything of that sort. So I didn't really have any cues internally to be looking at colleges. I was sort of doing it by myself based on the peer pressure, but not actually understanding what that meant for me financially or what college was all about or how I should be pursuing college as an audio engineer or theater sound designer or what was available to me. So I was looking at schools myself, but I just didn't really have the support. And so I began to become very cynical about colleges. And I decided, like, I'm going to be the different one and I'm not going to go to college. And so I gradually developed this attitude about college and like, I'm going to be an audio engineer. I'm going to work in a studio. I don't have to go to college. And that made me feel sort of better than all my friends who were also straight A students, but who felt all this mental and emotional pressure about it. And that separating myself from that, I think, made me a little bit more healthy, but it also misled me into having certain beliefs about college that weren't necessarily true. So out of high school, when I graduated, I started working at a mastering studio. I resigned after a few months because I realized sitting in a dark studio all day is not what gives me life. I don't feel empowered by this. I don't feel like I'm getting to do what I want. And it wasn't necessarily like I'm unhappy being the lowest one on the totem pole. It was just this is not the right environment for me. 
which was nothing against the people I was working with at all. I made some great connections through that. So after getting out of that situation, I was doing more wedding gigs with some of the people I met through that and starting to sort of freelance at local community theaters, local schools were hiring me. So I got to know some of the like local rental companies and more local people. And I was kind of in an interesting place at that time. I was getting to do really fun things, do really fun events, go to the city, do gigs in the city. But I just, you know, I was kind of in a stagnant point. And then I was talking with one of my mentors who has helped me throughout community theater. And he said, well, if you want to do broadcast, you can get involved with Good Morning America and we can have you on crew this summer. And I was very excited by that because that kind of meant I would have something new to do, something new to learn. So since 2016, I've done Good Morning America in Central Park for the concert series. So getting involved with that helped me to gain a little bit more confidence. And so I continued working throughout that year at NYU Skirball doing different events and various different companies. So then I was working with a company called Half Moon Theater at the Culinary Institute, which is a really gorgeous space, but it's not actually a theater. It's where they have their graduations because they have them very often from their program. So uh, I was working there with Sunny Kill and I somehow ended up working with her because of somebody else I knew from a community theater in Sugarloaf, New York. So somehow this happened and I got to meet her and I remember I saw the first signal line diagram I had ever seen. Even though I had been exposed to other pieces of professional paperwork, I had never seen a signal line diagram. And I was so excited by it (laughs) because I was like, there's a way to talk about this information and there's an organized way to present it. And this particular designer has her own way of understanding this. And of course, this was before like the USITT guidelines conversation was something I was aware of. And it was just very exciting to me. So I got to work with her and I got to mix the shows One of them was a John Cariani play that was kind of in development, so that was fun. And after working with her in some of her final days, I was like, if I wanted to apply to college, would you help me? Would you, you know, offer any support? And she said, yeah. And she said, well, come visit SUNY New Paltz. So I got to spend a day with her. Actually, I think it was two days. I got to go to her classes and just kind of check out what that was. And I got to see the different theaters, which, of course, I know like the back of my hand now. And I remember kind of having this moment when she was tuning the system for one of the shows at SUNY New Paltz. I had this moment where I just felt, wow, I really need to be here. I need to be in this space. And this is where I'm supposed to learn. And so after I had that experience, which is so in contrast from my attitude about college previously, I applied to New Newports and I got in and it's been kind of a ride ever since, kind of learning how I need to educate myself and learning how I can use the resources at school, like research projects and the connections that I'm able to have through the school to better myself. So yeah, it's kind of interesting. That's been my journey from having a really bad attitude about college and not taking responsibility for what that education means to now um, being a senior in college. So that's me. (laughs) I don't know how I'm supposed to follow that. But so I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, born and raised there. And I very much did not have a creative background at all. I grew up playing a lot of sports and just kind of being outside running around all the time. But when I was in eighth grade, my brother decided that he wanted to play trumpet. And so we were at the music store and he was getting a trumpet. And I was like, well, if he's getting an instrument, mom, I want to get an instrument too. So I picked up a ukulele. And from there, I kind of started to get more into like creative fields. So yeah, I started with ukulele, made it over to the guitar, made it over to piano, and then just kind of followed down that train sort of. So yeah, that's sort of where things started, where 
later, as I started to get more involved with music about the time that I was like 13, 14, I started to get more interested in like performances and stuff like that. And my freshman year of high school, my best friend growing up, she was always really into musicals and I never understood it. But our freshman year of high school, she like auditioned for our play and didn't get in. And so she decided she was going to do tech instead, but she didn't want to be alone. So she asked me to come with her and I was like, no, gross. I don't want to be involved in theater. Ew. And then she told me that I got to play with power tools and that was very intriguing. So I ended up going to this build with her and I really enjoyed it. And so I kept going to them and it was really this interesting transition. And it really was like a very like mind opening experience because something that I was like so skeptical about my whole life, I found that I really enjoyed. And so I just sort of like kept going to these builds and started to get more involved in like our drama club and being on like crews for plays and stuff like that. And then my sophomore year, the person that was doing sound was graduating. So they needed somebody else to come in. And at that point, like I didn't know anything about sound at all. I was just like excited to learn new things and we were good friends. So she was like, yeah, like I'll train you. You'll take over when I'm gone. And then just from doing that first show, like not having any idea what was going on, I ended up really, really loving it. And then since I was also the only person that was like trained at that point, I ended up being like the sound person for all of our shows. And then, you know, I started to like teachers, if they knew of other teachers that needed help or like community theaters, I would get hooked up there. And then going to school for it, I didn't even know that this was a thing that you could go to school for. For a long time, I went through like a few different things. I wanted to be a neuroscientist for a minute. I thought about marine biology for a minute. And then one of my good friend's stepdads is a sound person at Oberlin. And I was talking to him and he was sort of telling me about his journey and how he got to where he was. And I was like, yo, that's kind of cool. <laughs> like, I think I want to do that. So about the time that I was like a junior, like end of my junior year, that's when I made this realization that the stuff that I was doing just for fun with my friends in high school could actually be a career and like something that I do for real. And I was just so excited by it. I started to talk to my parents about it a little more, do some research, and then we found schools. I made probably the worst portfolio you've ever seen in your life, submitted it to CCM, and they decided that they liked me and I got in. And so, yeah, now I go to CCM and it's a really fun time. What year are you at CCM? Um, I'm a sophomore right now. So yeah, obviously this year we're limiting a little, but we do a lot of shows. So my time there, I've been an A2 on Rocky Horror and Secret Garden. And then those are my sound assignments that I've had. But yeah, that was a lot of fun. Secret Garden especially was a lot of fun because we worked with like L Acoustics and Black Tracks on that. So there was just a lot of complicated technology and a lot of learning. Since you both talked about sound design and getting into the field, What do you like about it as an artist and as a person? So I think this all started for me with a love of audio and I didn't really necessarily think about sound design as an art, but I knew that I had a visceral response to the dynamics that I was doing when I was first learning how to mix. And then the more that I learned about sound design in the theater, the more I realized this is a way to learn about places that I will never get to go to and time periods that I can never rewind to. So for me, for sound design and for theater specifically, I love that we get to live in different worlds and to explore those worlds 
worlds and to learn and to develop different perspectives about those worlds. I think that is one of my favorite things about sound design is that there's the dramaturgical influence on that. And then, of course, the technical part after. But I love that we get to escape and think of how we relate to these different worlds that exist in these plays. And I also kind of going more to the technical side, I love the decision making process and how it can have such a huge impact on the storytelling. But you can also do really nuanced things that are really highly thought out and very subtle that maybe only a few people will notice. But that's kind of the two things that really inspire me about it. And I love that, especially if you're working on more than one show, you have these different zones and mentalities and spaces that you can go to, both literally and sort of mentally. I think it's really important that we get to do this, even if we don't have the money to travel. I didn't do much traveling. So to be able to think about these places back in the 50s or in Shakespeare's time or any other time period that has ever existed or place to be able to explore that and to take my imagination to that place is just really inspiring. Kind of along the similar lines of it, a lot of it for me is just that audience reaction. I'm a very people-y person, so a lot of what I enjoy so much is sort of the community that comes with it and like the energy of everybody that you're working with. But there's also that sort of idea of the way that you can influence an audience is really, really cool to me. And I think a lot of it is because this is all so new to me and I didn't really even understand creative fulfillment like this until later in my life. I feel like people don't think a lot about sound, but being able to see how something, even despite the fact that it's sort of underground-ish, can like change the way a story is told so much and change how like a group of people feel about what's being presented to them is just really really cool to me I like to play with that I guess I think because as I started to learn more about sound it was a similar time of when I was learning more about music sort of like the development of those two together looking at sound design it's cool for me to think about it as like a big composition almost So I like being able to combine those elements. How does your music background and musicality influence your design work? I really don't have a lot of design experience, so I can't really answer this question because I don't really know. I haven't really had the experience to see how it fits into my process. Is your school the kind of school where you will end up designing like your junior, senior year? Yeah, I'm actually Mm -hmm. supposed to assistant design in the fall. I'm assistant designing in opera. So I think when we talk about musicality, there's so many different kind of layers to it. So for me, I only started composing in the last couple of years, and I had never really felt before then to sit down at a piano and make something in that way. For me, very purely, when I see the visual influence or the way that an actor moves, the way that an actor is playing a bit, I need to see something in order to have a musical response to it. Of course, if I'm reading the play, I will have a response to that. I just have never felt the need to really create anything out of thin air. There has to be a good reason for me. And it has to be more important than my story. It needs to be a character story, something that I can look at more objectively outside of myself. So I'll say that first about musicality, because that's kind of the perspective I come from. And I think when I'm approaching a new work, for instance, now we have new plays for this season coming up. I first I'll read the play, of course, once just to kind of enjoy it, quote unquote. But I'm always looking for those moments where I'm like, there's some sort of push where music is being asked for here. And by asked for, I mean the play wants it. 
there's some sort of movement, there's something that demands music help support this moment. So I really try to read into the play as much as I can and imagine it on the stage to get a sense of the musicality and what it wants. But I also think until you see it in rehearsal, you can't necessarily compose every single bit because you need to see the way that people are moving, how fast the transitions are, what's the energy that's happening, and would a lack of music, a lack of sound actually help more in that circumstance. So I think that's my general approach. But I also, I'm very aware of my limits as a composer as far as musicality, so I never want to make the director think or my assistant think that I'm on a different musical level or that I can compose some crazy, fully scored, and by that I mean like notated, multi-instrumental thing. I don't want to give off that sense that that's what would be expected in the theater. I try not to set the expectation to be at a certain level if I know I won't be able to create at that certain level. So I try to find where the limit is as far as using music that's not mine or having my assistant be involved in that. So I think there's both this amazing artistic musicality to any play, whether there's music scripted or not, but there's also my own limits and what I need to be aware of in that musicality and what I'm capable of and trying to continually stretch that as I grow as a designer. And I think you're touching upon something interesting about the sound design and the process is the kind of blurred lines that is inherently present in sound design. I don't know if if either of you want to speak to that. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting thing to consider. Definitely when I read a play, I think kind of on a scale. So if there's a phone ring and let's say it's a practical phone ring, like we've set up a prop and it's going to be localized on stage, right? Well, what's the pitch of the phone ringing and does that relate to any underscoring that's at that point? If the phone rings multiple times, does the pitch of the ring go up or down coordinating with the mood of the scene? There's so many different options, but in my mind, At first, I would consider like that is a practical sound effect and approach it very much as like sound design, sound effect. And then there's that middle ground where, you know, if you have like a low tone soundscape sort of thing, that I still think of more sound design. But wait, if I'm going to have some music on top of that, that's not necessarily happening in a synchronized musical way, like it's coming and going and it will be different for every performance. Is that composition? Because it's not the same every time. Or if it's randomized to a certain extent, I think that begins the conversation of how planned is this? And then there's the total opposite, which is composing it. It needs to happen at this exact cue and it's going to end at this exact cue or we have a cue to fade it out starting at this point or it's crossfading into something else. So, yeah, I definitely think it's like a scale. And that's the way that I think of it when I'm designing for sure. Are there any artists or designers who you find inspirational as you move forward in your careers? From a sound design perspective, there isn't really a single person that I would consider an influence because I feel like I'm in a time right now where I'm meeting a lot of different people all at once. And everybody that I meet who's like in a more established place within the industry, they all have different information to offer. Like every single person I've talked to has like a different perspective on things, different advice, different ways of doing things. And so I feel like I kind of try and take something from everybody that I meet because everybody's so cool. (laughs) Literally everybody that I've talked to has been such a friendly, cool person and their stories are just like fascinating. I feel like I especially take inspiration from women that are successful and established because obviously there's that underlying issue of working in a male-dominated industry. So to hear what they have to say is always very inspiring and people are just badass Musically, I listen to a lot of different music, but Jacob Collier is an artist that I think is just really, really cool. I wish I could explain. (laughs) I really do. But he just does crazy, crazy things with theory and chord structures and the way that he like uses motifs within his music is just so cool. 
I definitely agree with Elena as far as different people having different influences on you and taking a little bit from everybody that you encounter, whether it's online or in person. And I think we have kind of a unique situation here where I've met a ton of people through Tedesca over these past few months doing new things and pursuing things that help people other than themselves. And so I take a lot of influence and inspiration from those people. And like she said, especially women, I always really appreciate seeing a strong woman, no matter what race, in a position where they are doing something that helps the community that they identify with, but also others. And then for me personally, in my work experience, I take a lot of inspiration from the people who, if I was in a gig where it was male dominated, especially in the city, like doing broadcast, if I was in a situation like that, and there were certain men who were actually treating me well and seeing my potential and being caring and like a good person, you know, <laughs> to me, I always like hold on to those people because they're the people that I know will offer me jobs and that have. And anytime I see a woman in a position, I try to establish a good relationship with them because I think it's so important to create a community of people that are supportive towards each other and in broadcast is very different from theater but I really try to have good influences and to remember that no matter how many good influences with different perspectives that I have in my life and no matter how many people I have saying this works and this doesn't or all these different controversial things in sound you can have all these different influences but keep yourself independent and to know that you'll have your own way of doing things is really important so there are definitely several people who have been incredibly influential to me. Sunny Kill, obviously. Dan Gonko, who has really helped me and worked to mentor me, especially through some of my last productions, and who's always just a text away for any kind of help. And then some of the people that I met through broadcast, for sure. There are a lot of people, and it's so hard to just name individuals, but I think I'm really thankful to be in a position, especially because of Tedesco, where people know me and where I know that I can turn to for anything that I could possibly need in terms of sound design and audio engineering. Both of you being from places that are not, I would say, traditionally sound design heavier, designer heavier, theater heavy per se, like from upstate New York or from the Midwest. How do you think that's either helped, hindered, influenced your experience with the field and the community? So even though we're not incredibly close to the city, there's such a big influence. So I started getting involved in community theater and doing shows at my high school way before I ever saw a Broadway show. I never went to see Broadway shows or even like regional or off-Broadway shows until Curious Incident in, I think that was my senior year. So literally until like 2014, 2015, I had not seen a Broadway show and that was five years into doing sound. So it was kind of funny because the community theater groups I was working with often had equity people in it, but they would always say like, oh, you know, it's like a Broadway production, like it's Broadway quality and community theater always say that but I definitely didn't know what to expect as far as like what Broadway quality is or what theaters that were really doing challenging pieces and new works were all about so getting exposed to that now and meeting people who work in those theaters now as a part of my education is really cool so I think even though I'm not in the city I definitely am really connected to it and now that I've gotten to see more shows and be involved in more shows I feel that I'm more aware of the network that exists here because even though we don't have like a huge regional theater up here necessarily. There's a lot of community theater. Most theater people that I know up here are people that do community theater. And then a lot of them work in the city and, you know, are in law and order all the time and still do community theater. One of the broadcast guys that I work with all the time is the head sound engineer at a community theater. So there's a lot of overlap. And I think between the professional and community, there's an interesting overlap here in the Hudson Valley. So Cleveland has Playhouse Square, which is a pretty big theater district. So I actually grew up always having that around. And I didn't go to see any shows until I was in high school, 
But I definitely still had that foundation because we have like the touring Broadway shows that come through all the time. So I definitely still had an idea from seeing those of production value. And I think that was something that kind of helped me get more interested in theater and understand this world a little bit is seeing everything that goes into making a production what it is and seeing the beauty because it really is an art of like how everything comes together. So it was influential from that perspective. But I am from a suburb of that area, so we definitely do still have a lot of community theater. And so one thing that I find the most interesting about that is that it really is just a small world, because <laughs> everywhere that I go, I meet people that know people from where I'm from, which granted, I've pretty much only gone around Ohio, so that's probably why. But <laughs> seeing like the both sides of it, where we had Playhouse Square with the big Broadway level productions, and then also having just like these close, tight-knit families in these community theaters, and seeing them just do their best. I think it gave me a really like interesting perspective on those contrasts and seeing how you can get just as much enjoyment from one as you can the other. And they're very different things, but they're both really important. What brought you to apply for the Pat Mackay Scholarship? Honestly, for me, I had never heard of it before. I saw something got posted in the Student Sound Design Connection Facebook group, and scholarships are nice. I'm always open to applying to scholarships, so I just sort of, like, clicked on it and saw it was up. And as I read a little bit more into what LDI is and, like, what TSDCA does, it just seemed like a really cool opportunity and, like, a really cool experience if you were to get it and go through with things. Looking through all those questions, it was sort of, like, getting my brain thinking about sound and, like, why I do it, why I enjoy it, you know, what I could do with it. And that, I think, was just a really good thing for me to do because I was sort of feeling like I'd been losing connection with that part of myself. So it was really good to, like, go through all the questions and sort of revisit that and like dive back into it. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think the pandemic situation influenced me a lot to apply because I knew about it and I wanted to apply. I haven't applied to a lot of scholarships in the past. And, you know, my teachers are always encouraging me to do that, but I always feel like I don't have the time. I very much am like a straight A student and I'm always doing production. So it's really hard for me to invest the time into something that for me is kind of labor intensive. I don't know how Elena felt about it, but for me, I had to make my website during this time when I was applying. So I spent a solid two weeks on my website site building it. Again, I think it's really emotionally intense because you're going through your past and you're going through all these past shows. And for me, I had to kind of like remaster some of the things that I had mixed way back and looking at your past work and having to reconcile with it. So that was a really interesting process, but I knew that I would not be able to do that in any other time except for now during the pandemic because I was alone at home and we had just finished school. And of course they had extended the deadline. So I was like, this is my chance. So I, I did know about it since last year and I saw like, oh, Nina had one and everything, but I didn't know her. So I was like, I would love to apply to this. So I'm really happy in a way that I was able to because of being at home during the pandemic. So there's a plus of that. I also think it's just a great chance, like financially, I pay for college myself. So having any kind of support monetarily is really important to me. And especially because this is all about design. So it actually means something. It's not just here's a bag of money for you. It's like, here's a bag of money for you. And you get to do the DSDCA podcast and you get to go to LDI and USITT events and get interviewed and stuff like that. And you get to share your work and people will know you. So I definitely didn't think of it as just, oh, you know, this is my chance to get some money. It was like, this is 
my chance for other people to get to know my work, get to know my name, my face, and for me to network with different people. I definitely agree, by the way. The money, honestly, was kind of just like a bonus thing. Obviously, you know, I'm still like very early into it. So for me, it was less of a like, let's get my name out there. Like, of course, that helps. But more just this seems like a really cool opportunity to meet a lot of different people and just take in all these different experiences. And hopefully, like, it seemed like something that I could really just like learn a lot from and grow a lot with this experience. So that was probably the biggest part of it for me. And do you think that as a result of being a recipient of the scholarship that you've been able to meet more people and have those experiences that you're speaking of? Yeah, I think I've gotten to interact with some people that I only kind of saw. It was kind of like they were on stage and I was in the audience, you know, audio engineers and composers too, that I knew about or had heard of or knew about really well. I'm getting to talk with them and interact with them or maybe even be on the same committee as them for to discuss. So yeah, it's really been an excellent opportunity for that. And I didn't really expect that to happen. But I also do think that in the process of making my website and everything and kind of absorbing where I'm at right now as an artist and only owning that as mine and like putting my name on it and like this is me I think that comes along with better confidence which allows you to interact with people more in a more free way than if you don't have something where you're like this is what I've done if you don't have something that you're owning as yours if you don't feel like you have a portfolio or something solid that you can point to like this is what I do it makes it harder to interact with people in a confident way people that you really admire and that you see as leaders in the industry. That too, honestly, I struggle a lot with confidence in my work and sort of accepting where I'm at. I tend to belittle myself or make excuses for things that I've done um, and talk it up like it's a lower quality than it is. So I think making that portfolio and talking to some of our grad students to get help from them and just sort of reflecting on that and being able to like put it in like an organized place and actually like think about it and be like as much as I will say like no it's not a big deal or like put it down you know it's good to have it in that space to say like you know actually when I think about it this is kind of (laughs) cool And it's something that I do kind of like showing off. So it definitely helps with confidence and just sort of understanding of where I'm at. It seems for both of you, it's increased the confidence that you have as artists and really like being able to talk confidently about yourselves. Is that something you would agree with overall? Yeah. And I also think in addition to that, it's helped me to kind of accept I'm in my own place as an artist. I have a certain background. I know certain things. I know some of what I don't know. I don't know some of what I don't know. And every one of us is like a unique mix of that, especially as students. And I think going through the process of this scholarship application allowed me to take a look at myself and to get to this place where I'm like, okay, I'm unique. And there are all these other sound designers out there and they're unique too. And they have unique work too. But this is mine and this is what I'm focusing on and to take the kind of competitive judgmental part of it out and that has really freed me in a sense because when I saw all the different students from some of the more renowned schools like CCM well I go to a SUNY school and so there's a certain like inferiority complex that sort of thing and also you know me as a composer having a certain skill set and a very limited experience in that having only done it for a few years but I have more audio engineering experience so there's an interesting balance that I had to kind of strike between the different elements of me and then the different elements that I saw of other people. 
And that was like right before I had to apply for the scholarship that I began to be kind of jealous and competitive. And so I think that this application like freed me from that in a spiritual way, maybe. (laughs) But really, I think it's important for us to all like think about what's the relationship between me as a designer and others as designers, because it's really easy to be competitive and to have a complex about it when we really don't have to. I mean, we can collaborate and talk about sound and we all love sound and we all have our different preferences about what programs we use and what plugins we like or our approaches to things. And I think this has made me aware, oh, there's an appreciation that I can have as opposed to a sense of competitiveness. That's like kind of a side effect of the scholarship, I think, but that does mean a lot to me. And that's one of the things I'm really thankful for because of this. I think for me, like looking at those relationships and seeing like what different people's opinions and stuff are, I think I've taken a lot of inspiration from it. There are a lot of people that I've come across that, you know, they're more experienced than me, they're more knowledgeable than I am. So being able to like talk to them and get their advice and like hear them talk intelligently about something that they're passionate about, like it helps me to sort of strive to get to that point and do what I can to be as involved as possible and like take in as much as possible. Through the scholarship, through this current pandemic situation, where the last year's experience was they were able to go to LDI and do that sort of thing, whereas I know that this year it's different. But the question here is having you both speak to the experience of going to school, experiencing the scholarship, experiencing the field from your perspectives as students. Yeah. So something that my professor always says to me is take advantage of the fact that you're a student right now. With the label of student comes uh, certain privileges that you wouldn't necessarily have otherwise or even as like an early career person. If you say that you're a student, that acknowledges that you have a willingness to learn and gives you the opportunity to tap into people's memory of when they were students and resources that they needed at that time or the people that they met that changed their life. So taking advantage of that and using it for good instead of bad and not letting it get to your head too. I think that's all important. Along with that, like there's never going to be another time where it's more okay for me to mess up. And I think that's really important because being able to like try something and if it doesn't work out well, say like, okay, yes, I did not do this how I should have or I could have done it better. And then talk to people and figure out how can I do this better in the future when you're out in the field, if you mess up, then it's kind of more on you, at least, is what it seems like. Where now, if I'm at school, I have this whole network of support to sort of help me out and show me what a better way to do things are. You know, everybody has different advice, so it's helpful to, like, build my own opinions and perspectives on things, too. So, yeah, there kind of really is a power with the label of student, and it's really nice. What are your expectations for the school year? I'm a very hands-on learner, so the idea of online classes is a little bit spooky just because I feel like I struggle to pick things up if I don't physically do them. So I think that's going to present its whole new form of challenges, but everybody in my school is trying their best to give us the best education that they possibly can while keeping everybody safe. So there are still some opportunities where we're doing like concert style shows or just like smaller shows, but still on like our main stage so people can be spaced out, stuff like that. Our professor's done a lot of research into remote projects, kind of, different ways where even if even if it's not like directly like, oh, you're working on a production and you're designing, like it's still chances to explore different worlds of sound with podcasts or like post-production, just stuff that is still going to be stimulating for us and help us to like further our education. I think it's just going to be a lot of like feeling it out and trying to get used to how school is going to function now and sort of build my own way of navigating it and getting the 
the most that I can out of it. So it's a little nerve wracking, honestly. But from what I've seen, everybody's here to help and everybody just wants the best for us. So it's good to know that you have that there. So my school has kind of decided to do an interesting mix of in-person classes and online classes and then some that meet sometimes in person and other times we'll meet online. Personally, at the end of last semester, I actually really enjoyed switching to online. And I say that kind of as a commuter who would have to travel 30 or 35 minutes to school every day. So for me, changing to online allowed me to, in certain courses, focus more on myself and not, again, on like the kind of competitive nature of being around music majors, especially like music theory, that was a chance for me to really interact personally with my professor and to have a better relationship with them by focusing on what I knew instead of where I was in comparison to other people. So that is like definitely one of the benefits of online learning, I think, especially with people who like to be more independent and people that like to make their own schedule and are able to structure themselves in that way. So this upcoming semester, our theater department has decided to do 10 productions over the course of the year. And that will be all readings, whether they're musical readings or play readings. And they're definitely focusing the season on more diversity in terms of playwrights, in terms of the people that they're bringing in to direct the shows, etc. So that's great. As far as the production work, I'm designing two shows in the fall semester and then I think either two or three in the spring semester. And it's weird, like Elena said, I think the expectation is hard. There's a acknowledgement that we all have to be really flexible, but then there's also this simultaneous thing of, am I actually learning what I need to learn and what I expected to learn, you know, when I enrolled in college. So I'm looking forward to approaching things creatively, whether that means like supplementing what I'm learning online with different resources, whether that's YouTube or manuals, etc., especially for technical things. But I'm also, you know, really hoping that we're able to work in person as much as possible. And I'm trying to take steps that will help me do that. So I'm going to try to do another undergraduate research project. I'm kind of aiming towards doing system tuning so that I can still get the chance to be alone in the theater with smart and to work on that and to get my skills to the next level with that because I know that that's one technical thing that I probably won't get to do as much. I won't get to like be in the venue as much in that situation for many different shows in the next year. So I want to like put myself in a situation where I can do that. So I'm looking for different experiences like that where I think I will never get to go through this part of the tech process in this production format. So I need to make it for myself. So I think that's definitely my mentality is like I'm still responsible for my education. I can't just blame the school and especially not the theater department for like not trying hard enough because they're trying their best. They're trying so hard to keep everybody safe. And I know there's an incredible amount of emotional, physical, and professional labor that's going into making this happen. So I'm thankful to everybody that's doing that. And I think we all have to be accountable to ourselves for the education that we're putting ourselves through because there's so many resources and our professors are there to help and to be guiding voices throughout this process. So I'm always really optimistic about the semester. I have a lot of respect for my professors and for my school. That's the attitude I'm trying to have as we go into the semester. At this point in the conversation, we started to discuss the challenges and barriers that exist for women, particularly young women in the industry. And Nat and Elena shared their personal experiences. Nat, you might agree, but I think I tend to get taken for granted just because I am young. And then the fact that I'm a woman on top of that doesn't help. So I don't know. There's just a lot there. Yeah, I think for me, this is like a multi-tiered thing, but... First, I think like identifying as a female, 
there's a few different facets. So there's like the ideas about yourself. And I don't know, like, Elena, if you felt this way, too. But I mean, when people treat you differently or have different expectations of you or will criticize you more because you're a female or a younger female in a certain space, you develop ideas about yourself based on those reactions or those comments. And it's really unfortunate because then you then make it worse for yourself. I don't know if you had that experience as well, if you want to talk about that as far as like self-confidence and feeling like you belong, you know? Honestly, it kind of has the opposite effect for me because I'm petty sometimes. (laughs) So when men try to be like, oh no, like here, I'll get some help. You don't have to lift that or stuff like that. Then there's like a fire inside me where I'm like, you dare question my strength because I am a woman. How could you? (laughs) So... (laughs) I don't know. I don't think it's actually negatively affected my confidence. If anything, it's given me more drive to do things that I'm proud of. And we actually, we have quite a few women in our sound program, which is really awesome because then you have that system of support where if the guys try to be a little bit more rude about it, then you have six other girls coming behind you being like, what did you just say? So it's really nice to have that system of support, but I do sometimes find myself sort of like dressing up almost to kind of fit in. That's the one thing. I don't know how to say this exactly. Like you feel as though you have to fulfill a certain like role that is not necessarily like completely you. Yeah, kind of. Or like, and showing more femininity too. I tend to hesitate in that a little bit, but other than that, it's not been too bad. It is that aspect of checking yourself in a way that you might not feel your cis male peers maybe are in the same way. Yeah, I definitely feel like, especially in New York City, for me, it's a weird line because like for me, I am smaller and will have trouble lifting things in a different way. But a lot of the ways that equipment is lifted, just to like highlight one thing, it's really not safe even for the guys that are doing it, even like the bigger guys. I mean, let's make it safe for everybody and change what everybody means. Why do things have to be so heavy and unsafe? Is it actually more efficient? Does it protect people? I mean, so many people in this industry develop problems throughout the years that they're working so why can't we reevaluate that rather than reevaluate the fact that we have women on the job? I think it's so stupid. But I definitely think like for me and especially in that setting, there's all types of harassment that happen. Some is in front of you and some is behind your back. Some of it is making, you know, assumptions about your relationship to certain male colleagues, especially if they've helped you. And then there's comments about your body, comments about what you're wearing, etc. And people criticizing you in a way that your male cohorts aren't criticized at all. And then sometimes you're sexualized. Like for me, you know, my parents and my family were like, you're working in New York City and you are driving down at midnight and the gig starts at 2 a.m. and you're driving home, you know, alone or whatever. That must feel so unsafe. But in my mind, I'm like, well, there's a lot of IATI guys that are really sweet and really nice and who are respectful. There are some that are not. And then there are some people on the crew that are really respectful and other people who are not, other people who I cannot stand being around. So there's this interesting overlap that kind of overlaps with what I talked about earlier, like the people that respect you and the people that you want to see more of in your industry you kind of stick to those people so for me I definitely think those things combined with my ideas about myself that developed in tandem with those really uncomfortable experiences and microaggressions that is something I've had to really grow out of and I'm starting to grow out of it more and really recognize it and kind of own that but it's very hard as a young woman and I think even as I get older like I'm still going to be 4'11 so I'm still going to face some of these issues still but I think realizing like you don't have to own what others own in their own opinion about you you know that's the most freeing thing that you can do 
And I try to kind of emphasize that as much as possible anytime I have to speak about this, because I think you don't necessarily realize the limits that you put on yourself mentally because of the way that people have treated you until you do that. It's so hard to be free from it. And it's a whole process. And I don't even know where it starts or where it ends. But for me, it's been very hard. And I know that my male colleagues don't have to go through that and that they might have different challenges, but they will never have to be scared when they walk onto a gig and it's all men. And, you know, that feeling that you're the only woman on the gig. It's a scary feeling, but it can also be maybe empowering if you figure out how to think about it. One thing I do think is really interesting is some of my guy friends have like asked me about this and I've tried to explain to them sort of like what it feels like. And anytime that they hear about it, they're pretty horrified. <laughs> they're pretty much like, oh my God, I can't believe you have to go through that. But it's just so difficult for them to like grasp and understand because it's not something that they go through. Right. It's like, it's all about awareness. Exactly. So I don't know if we could ever figure out a way to like just help other people that don't go through it understand what it's like and what it feels like. I think that would be very helpful to like make progress and sort of like diminish the problem. Thank you both for speaking to that because there's something to be said, like many fields are like this and that's not to diminish what is in theater, but theater is male dominated, particularly in sound design. You know, there's been the statistics about something like 3% of all lore and Broadway sound designers are women or don't identify as cis men and particularly cis white men. And it's difficult to really get across to the people that you will be working with potentially that this is a problem, but what it's like fundamentally, because there are a lot of men who know know that it's a problem, understand that it's a problem, but to really understand what it's like to be the non-white person in the room or the one non-cis man in the room, it's a difficult thing. And so thank you both for speaking to that. I am also very lucky because our professor's really adamant about making sure that like we're all a family and everybody is accepting of each other so someone else in my class is also 411 so <laughs> she was on a show where the designer was like being a real jerk to her because she didn't want to lift a speaker that was basically her size and so he ended up hearing about this and our professor sent out a whole email being like y'all this is not acceptable we need to do something about this so it's good to get things like that and see that people are like really interested in making other people as comfortable as they can be and making sure that no one's being like deprived of an opportunity because of their physical size or the fact that they're not a man to shorthand again. So there's some hope, I think, which is good. Yeah, I think it's all about taking up space. I'll briefly describe a situation I had last year. I was suddenly in a situation where I was experiencing chronic pain in my leg and I was having spasms and it made it very difficult to get through one of my courses specifically that was technical theater oriented because of the physical demands of it. And so that's kind of a different discussion. But one of the huge issues that I was facing was I was designing a show and the tech table was not comfortable. It was not ergonomic at all. And I had to do my own research about what I needed and figure out how to ask for that. And then I finally, this past show before we went into the COVID situation, finally, I realized what I needed in order to be not in pain. Otherwise, I would be like having Advil excessively during tech and really struggling to be comfortable. 
And when you're in pain, no matter what kind of pain it is, it takes so much mental energy out of you. And before I was able to deal with my chronic pain, that was another moment where all of the doubts about myself and my physical ability went from like my size to now literally physical ability. Like I will be in pain if I do this for too long or if I sit a certain way for too long or if I turn to my assistant in a certain way too many times. So being in that situation, I realized I really need to speak up for myself. And whether that means, hey, we got to get a couple people to help out and remove some seats in the theater so that I can put the seat that I need in or we need to redesign the tech table a little bit or I need to add a piece of wood on top of the tech table so that it can reach out to me instead of me leaning over it that kind of thing I really had to think about that a lot and it was another moment of self-realization like I'm responsible for this and I need to speak up for myself if I'm in pain and if it is causing me a ability issue that will impact me for weeks to come just from sitting at a tech table for two weeks so it's really hard there's like the self-recognition and self-responsibility and self-awareness but there's also the responsibility of the people around you to assist you and to support you in that. And I think that's the part that we need to figure out how to make happen. It's all about awareness in the community sense, I think. Last question. What is a dream project you would like to work on? For me, I think any project that challenges me, both in terms of the amount of research I need to do, as well as maybe certain complications as far as the venue space or the engineering part of it being particularly difficult. Anything where I can look at the end of the process and say, wow, I'm really not the same designer engineer that I was at the beginning of the process, no matter how hard that is. Like I prefer those kinds of processes than really easy things where I stayed in my comfort zone. So that's pretty vague, but really anything where I need to go through a research process or look inside myself, whether that's at like prejudices that I might have or things I didn't know before or ignorant decisions that I made before or anything like that. Anything where I need to go through a process that becomes personal and where my art is tying into my development and my self-cultivation, that is like the most rewarding thing. If I could go through that my whole life and, you know, further refine myself and refine my practice as a sound engineer, that would be ideal. I think something I was told when I was younger was like, get the heck out of your comfort zone. So I'm trying trying to live by that as much as I can and put myself in situations where I'm pushing myself further and further. That was a really good answer. I don't know. I was like trying to think about this question and I honestly like can't really say. I would definitely agree with what Nat said, but I think anything where I can work collaboratively with other people is really rewarding to me. I like being able to have that growth with somebody else and sort of, you know, develop a relationship with people because I think once you start to develop that relationship and get more in depth and like make memories connected to other people, that's when it starts to like really hit for me and get more personal I suppose so yeah I think just anything where I could really like build a team and sort of be proud of the work that we've done together is pretty cool where can people find and contact you so I have my website that I've been talking about this whole time natsounddesign.com natsounddesign.com and so there's that and then I also I have a secrets art blog although on it it says it's not an art blog which is edmhdesigndiary.tumblr.com and that's like purely for the purpose of when I have a block artistically or when I need some sort of inspiration I go there and that's something that I started in intro to design which was the very first college class that I sat down for we were encouraged to make a resource for ourselves and I thought oh that's really for visual designers but it's actually been really useful as a sound designer so there's that and then for 
for the next week, I guess I'm still involved in virtual theater collaboration. And then we're going to have a couple people take over for Dominique and I. But virtual theater collaboration is an amazing thing. And they have a Facebook and then they have an Instagram. So there's going to be a little bit of a changeover happening. But as of next week, we will have had six productions that we've done, plus a staged reading. And this is all like student work, including graduate students. And it's a very interesting group. And it has kind of fed a lot of people during this time. It definitely has this, you know, ups and downs. There's nothing perfect about making theater digitally, but it's a cool group to check out if you have the time and if you want to see student work and maybe even find like some potential colleagues to reach out to. So I don't really have anywhere that I am like displaying work right now, but you know, I have all the social medias, you know, Facebook, Instagram, all that fun stuff. And my name is in all of them. So you can just sort of reach out. And if you want to chat, I'd be happy to chat. Just send me a DM or something and we'll work it out. I probably should make a website. I'll get on that at some point, but that's where we're at right now. And that is expected. I didn't have an official website until senior year for sound. That's a different interview, a different podcast. (laughs) Thank you both for sitting down and speaking with me about your experiences. Of course. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. It was great to talk with somebody who won the scholarship last year. This podcast is a production of the TSDCA. This episode was produced by Nina Field, edited by Kyle Jensen, composed by Stephanie Senior, and mixed by Brandon Reed, with additional support from Josh Samuels. Additional equipment was provided by Sure. If you like what you heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And if you're interested in finding out more about the TSDCA, our home on the web is tsdca.org.